Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The broken U.S. immigration system is in the news this week. We hear voices of those rallying on the National Mall. Capitalism, colonialism, and imperialism violates moral and norms human rights to living in a dignified life on this planet. And we speak to Jamima Pierre of the Black Alliance for Peace about Haitian migrants at the southern border. You know, the spectacle of the Texas-Mexico border gets everybody upset, but no one's upset at the ongoing U.S. destabilization and completely dismantling of the Haitian state. And finally, when it comes to these and other complex issues, corporate media obscures more than it explains. Journalist John Jeter is in the house. That's what the news media does, basically, right? Like, they break everything down to one scene right now, and they divorce it from history and from context. And so the American people are left without this clear understanding of what's going on. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. As of Thursday, at least 2,000 Haitians living at a massive migrant camp in Del Rio, Texas, were deported by the Biden administration, with more flights scheduled for each day. Up to 14,000 are expected to be deported under pandemic-related rules created by the Trump administration and continued by Biden. These mass deportations, the existence of the camp, and images of border agents on horseback whipping these Haitian asylum seekers highlights the crisis both at the border and in Haiti, a nation still reeling from a deadly earthquake, the still unresolved assassination of its president, and decades of U.S. and European destabilization. After expressions of outrage both in and outside the U.S. about the treatment of these asylum seekers, the Biden administration announced that thousands of other Haitians, mainly pregnant women and families with small children at the camp, are being allowed to stay in the U.S. as they await an immigration hearing. Meanwhile, senior American diplomat Daniel Foote, who oversaw Haiti policy, resigned in a letter dated Wednesday. Foote criticized the Biden administration for deporting these thousands of Haitian migrants to a place deemed to be dangerous. Four days after the much-hyped September 18th justice for J6 rally fizzled with about 200 demonstrators on the National Mall, crowds did gather there for the March for Citizenship, Climate, and Care. Focused on passage of comprehensive immigration reform, many speakers expressed outrage at the treatment of these Haitian asylum seekers and frustration with Senate rules that allow an unelected parliamentarian or the filibuster to prevent passage of immigration reforms with a simple majority vote. This is Enrique Fernandez, a vice president of the labor union Unite Here, representing workers in the hospitality industry. What's happening in the border to our Haitian brothers and sisters is inhumane. And at the same time, I call on the Democratic majority to listen to us and do what they promise us. Fire the parliamentarian if necessary. Eliminate the filibuster if necessary. Grow a backbone for God's sake. Both at the White House and on Capitol Hill, these are critical days which will determine whether two bills to repair the nation's crumbling infrastructure and invest in workers will pass. 
and political analysts say that Biden's presidency hangs in the balance. Ryan Grimm writes in The Intercept that with the administration's $3.5 trillion package facing a September 27th deadline, conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona have been at work trying to derail that White House's ambitious agenda. Grimm says that their maneuvers risk or are intended to cause a complete sabotage of the Democrats' once-in-a-generation chance to address pressing climate, health care, and immigration issues. The Intercept has also reported this month on the connections between dark money groups to cinema and Manchin's money ties to fossil fuel corporations that want to scuttle what few provisions that remain in the bills addressing the climate catastrophe. In its weekly Moral Mondays action, the Poor People's Campaign kept up its pressure on Manchin. This is co-chair of the campaign, the Reverend William Barber. Senator Manchin needs to stop serving the positions of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and the Koch brothers in his legislative agenda. We have put forth, as you have seen, a full-page ad in the major newspapers in West Virginia outlining how Senator Manchin is on the wrong side of poor and low-wealth people in his state and in the country. And we are currently in conversations about plans for possible nonviolent direct actions, may include a number of things, stand-in, sit-ins, right in West Virginia in his own office. And today we're launching a national call-in and asking people to flood his lines today and all of this week. The anti-war organization, the Answer Coalition, is also acting to hold the powerful accountable. On Sunday, September 19th, it protested in Beverly Hills, where former President George W. Bush was speaking. Chantel James has more. Former President George W. Bush whose decision to invade Iraq under the false claim that they held weapons of mass destruction cost over a million lives, spoke on Sunday in Beverly Hills. Answer Coalition and others were there to make their opposition to Bush's lack of accountability for destroyed lives known. One member, Iraq war veteran and journalist Mike Preisner, interrupted Bush as he spoke to demand justice. Mr. Bush, when are you going to apologize for the million Iraqis that are dead because you lied? You lied about weapons of mass destruction. You lied about connections to 9-11. You lied about Iraq being oppressed. You sent me to Iraq. You sent me to Iraq in 2003. My friends are dead. Joshua Castillo. You you killed people. You lied. You lied about WMD. A million Iraqis are dead because you lied. My friends are dead because you lied! You need to read the names of individuals from Iraq and America who lost their lives during the war. Bush currently enjoys a revival with the publication of his paintings that has served to whitewash his image and distance him from war crimes. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. Also speaking of former officials, Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman has been indicted by Department of Justice Special Counsel John Durham for lying to the FBI in connection with the Russia-Trump conspiracy hoax known as Russiagate. Journalist Aaron Mate, who we have spoken to on this show, wrote for The Gray Zone this week that, quote, 
Although Sussman faces just one count on a false statement charge, the 27-page charging document offers an expansive window into how the Russiagate scam began, how Democratic operatives, intelligence officials, and establishment media figures dishonestly fed it to the public, end quote. And finally, several brief items in culture and media. A huge hack of the internet company Epic by the group Anonymous is revealing details of who's behind the websites of the Proud Boys and other far-right groups. In Newburgh, Oregon, a public school employee who reported to work in blackface to somehow make the connection between the civil rights icon Rosa Parks and protesting vaccine mandates has been placed on administrative leave. This incident happened in the same school district where students made a game of auctioning off black classmates in a so-called slave trade Snapchat group. In Coleyville, Texas, a school board voted Monday, September 20th to not renew the contract of James Whitfield, a popular high school principal, based on the false claims that he had advocated for the teaching of critical race theory in the school. Before the vote, many parents spoke out on behalf of Whitfield, the school's first black principal. According to a Daily Beast article, one woman stood and said, quote, It's not okay to make baseless accusations about what our schools are teaching, particularly when all you know about the subject is what's been told by professional propagandists, end quote. Here in D.C., the Next Fest event of music and musicians from the district is being held September 25th, noon to sundown at Malcolm X Park in Northwest D.C. And Friday, September 24th through Sunday, September 26th, are three national days of action to cancel the rents in advance of the next expiration of the CDC moratorium on evictions. The organizers have three demands for Congress to pass an indefinite moratorium on evictions that covers 100% of the country, for authorities at all levels to dramatically speed up the distribution of already allocated renter relief funds, and for Congress to cancel the rents and wipe out all rent and mortgage debt accumulated during the pandemic. That's Friday, September 24th through Sunday, September 26th. For more information, go to canceltherents.org. That's canceltherents.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is brought to you by the red, the black, and the green. Crossroads. Fuck me now, listen. Uh, this is more than a record. Cop shot 30 rounds in 15 seconds. Four-month-old baby in the rear section. Another mother got a call to reverend. A dead daughter, sister, veteran. Now the media posing all the questions. Slandering the victims. Pointing out aggression. Somehow the angel of God kept that baby protected. Cause grandma prayed beyond the pictures in the necklace. It's shooting up our boys out here like tetanus. Where the rage, where the cries, where the lectures. Where the special team of inspectors made in America. Where the project. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, as of Thursday, at least 1,400 Haitians that had been living at a massive migrant camp in Del Rio, Texas, have been deported by the Biden administration with more flights scheduled for each day. These mass deportations, the existence of the camp, and images of border agents on horseback whipping at these Haitian asylum seekers has highlighted the crisis both at the border and in Haiti, a nation still reeling from a deadly earthquake, 
the still unsolved assassination of its president and decades of U.S. and European destabilization. Here to help us understand the latest is Jamima Pierre, Haiti America's coordinator for Black Alliance for Peace and professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California at Los Angeles. Welcome to On the Ground, Jamima. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, so glad that you could join us. Well, as I looked at the, the images and the coverage this week, I grew increasingly concerned that the issue of what is happening to Haitians here will be confined to this one image of this border agent, you know, whipping at this man uh, seeking asylum here, and that this image and representation will become more important than the policy of how Haitians are treated in the U.S. and in Haiti. What's your take? Well, we're on the same page because uh, there are two things happening. Part of it is the spectacle of it has become more about the representation of it, you're absolutely right, than about actual structural policies and U.S. policies in the region. And the second thing that it does, uh, and, and I'm Haitian, right? And so I very much feel the pain of seeing this. But what it does is completely erase all the other Black immigrants that have been stuck at the U.S.-Mexico borders for years. So you have Black immigrants from the African continent, from Colombia, from Nicaragua, from Venezuela, all stuck at the borders. And you also, we can't forget our brown brothers and sisters who have also borne the brunt of U.S. immigration, terrible policies and treatment. And so the other thing that it does is also allows us not to talk about what led to the almost 15,000 Haitians at the Texas-Mexico border, but also there are actually more people stuck at the southern Mexico border with Guatemala and in Tijuana. But it also allows us not to talk about the fact that the, why, why there is a buildup. You know, the, it's not like these Haitians just showed up from out of nowhere. It's not like they just swam from Haiti and ended up in Texas. They've been there for years and they've been there for years precisely because Beginning with Obama in early 2016, there was this process that U.S. Border uh, Patrol and U.S. immigration started called metering, which meant that it drastically cut the number of asylum seekers that could actually come to the border and, and seek asylum. And what they would do is hand out numbers and give them appointments where they can come and claim asylum. And sometimes these appointments would be, you know, two, three weeks out, two, three months out. And now it's years before you can even come and claim asylum. And so Obama's right. administration started doing that. And then Trump then, of course, upped the ante. And what he did was do his remain in Mexico policy, right. which then forces everyone to actually stay in Mexico while they wait for their case to go through the courts, which can take years. So you have this buildup beginning really five years ago as the numbers are growing, you have the buildup. And so that's the reason why there's so many people there. You know, these people are not from Mexico, including our brown brothers and sisters who are stuck in Mexico. They're not from Mexico. So people are living in terrible conditions because of U.S. policy. And then U.S. policy with complicity of the Mexican government of mistreating everybody. So now you have the southern border that has thousands, you know, more people than the Texas border, the southern border in Guatemala. You have 20, 30,000 people waiting. And the Mexican government using the Mexican military are basically really terrorizing the people down there, trying to prevent them from coming up to the border to ask for asylum, right? And so you have all that. Now, when you say that, uh, just for clarification, 
at that southern border, are they keeping them in Guatemala from coming into Mexico or they are allowed into Mexico, but they aren't allowed to migrate up through the country? It's both. Right. Okay. So it's both. And then there, there's a small town. I forgot the name of it. And I need to look this up. But there's a small town in Mexico where a lot of these there are a lot of these migrants have been camped out in the, in the main plaza for weeks and now months. Right. Where the Mexican government is blocking them from leaving and heading north. Before, the Mexican government used to let them head north and claim asylum and sometimes would give some of them regularization papers to allow them the transit because they need papers from the Mexican government to transit up north to the U.S.-Mexico border. So you have that. So there are immigrants at multiple points in the Americas. There's also a group of immigrants stuck in Colombia at the border, right? Because the U.S. border, we have to think about, is not just the U.S.-Mexico border. It's being enforced everywhere. It's the Colombia border. It's the Guatemala-Mexican border because the U.S. is enforcing that, forcing or working in tandem with these other nations to prevent the migration north. This week I was listening to a real activist and you know advocacy around immigration issues who talked about how so many Haitian workers went to Brazil to work on construction of the Olympics in Rio in 2016, because you, you actually mentioned 2016. So I thought, wow, you know, we have a lot of things converging on that year. So, and that uh, after things were built, they were basically told, okay, well, we don't need you anymore. And these people started the migration north up through Central America, through Central America, uh, to up to Mexico, to the areas that we're talking about right now. And then also there are the people who left Haiti after the earthquake. So uh, what, what can you tell us about those two, I guess, groups of migrants? migrants who have maybe come to this place now after so many you know years of not even living in Haiti. Well, exactly. And this is the other point I was going to make. You know, the spectacle of the Texas-Mexico border gets everybody upset, but no one's upset at the ongoing U.S. destabilization and completely dismantling of the Haitian state from mm. the 2004 coup d'etat, which the U.S., Canada, and France sponsored. Why are there Haitians in Brazil? Well, Haitians are in Brazil because after the coup d'etat in 2004, the U.S. came in with an occupation force and then the U.N. took over from that um, with this so-called peacekeeping force with Brazil, so-called leftist government Lula, leading the military wing of the occupation, which is why Brazil then became a space for Haiti to go to um, after the earthquake, which is why Brazil found Haiti, Haitians as cheap labor. So uh, Haiti was a training ground for Brazil and its soldiers so that they can go back and terrify the, the Black people in the favelas. Wow. And so, so part of that, we have to think about, this is a story, this is a crisis of imperialism. The reason that there are Haitians in Brazil is because Brazil participated in the ongoing occupation of Haiti through the UN and the so-called, and the core group, which makes a lot of the decisions in Haiti and the U.S. government. So these people are there. And then you're absolutely right. The, the fact that the Brazil government became right wing, neoliberal policies, the demise of the Brazilian economy and racism, Really right. made people leave and flee and head to a place where they had family and so on. And so that's really why these people are there. They are there because the U.S. was in Haiti and these other places, right? They are here because our government is there. And that's the reality. So the senior American diplomat overseeing Haiti policy, Daniel Foote, 
resigned on Wednesday. And in his letter, he said, I will not be associated with the United States inhumane counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti, a country where American officials are confined to secure compounds because of the danger posed by armed gangs in control of daily life, end quote. So what's your reaction to Foote's uh, letter and his resignation? Yeah, well, I think it's great that there's infighting between the U.S. and the core group. <laughs> and to have a diplomat as problematic as Daniel Foote, people should look up Daniel Foote's work in Colombia to see how problematic he is. So to have him talk about the hubris of the core group is important. But at the same time, he does the same thing, right? Talking about gangs and criminals, exceptionalizing Haiti as if the problem is Haitians. As far as I'm concerned, the gangs and criminals in Haiti are first and foremost the core group, the UN and the US government who have been controlling Haiti and destabilizing and acting like colonial masters. So that's the problem with Daniel Foote's letter. I mean, I think it's, it's good that he's pointing this out, but the reality is he also needs to point out that we're not going to exceptionalize Haiti make it seem like they're armed gangs. So who's funding and who's arming these gangs? Haiti's poor. Who's paying for all these high-tech machine guns that they're carrying around? We have to talk about that. And the source of that is actually not within Haiti. You know, it's a transnational oligarchy working in tandem with U.S. and, and Western imperialism. Right. Just this week, I was making the analogy between the gun violence here in Washington, D.C., and I was saying, you know, I, I don't think we have any gun factories here. Where are the guns coming from? Right. And uh, if you've ever lived or worked in Baltimore, it has the kind of a 1970s type heroin addiction problem where you actually see people out on the stoop, like nodding out addicted to heroin. And, you know, there's nobody making heroin in Baltimore. So it's coming from somewhere. And this has been for decades, right? So similarly in Chicago, you know, where are the guns coming from? So that's actually the the sub, uh, great subject for a story. You know, where are the guns coming from in Chicago? Where are the guns coming from in, in Haiti? Um, but uh, talking about the actual lives of people who, who came as seeking asylum, I've read in the New York Times about one man who had established a life for himself in Panama. He was a welder. He had a job and he was, he had a family life. And I guess his partner came to the U S and was able to stay here. And he was coming up here to be with her and their, the rest of their children. And so he was stuck at this camp. And before he knew it, he was on a plane back to Haiti. So now he's, he's back where he started from where, you know, he, he could have stayed in Panama and had, had a much better life. But how much has the extension of the TPS to Haitians here in the United States uh, been interpreted by Haitians living abroad that they could also come and take advantage of that? Well, I, I don't know. I think TPS or no, people would come anyways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and people, people have been coming long before TPS was granted, right? And every major wave of migration from Haiti to the U.S. and from other places has been linked to the actions of the U.S. government. So in the 1991 wave was because the U.S. helped oppose Aristide, you know, our right. first democratically elected president. And so TPS is very narrow, and, you know, it's like a, putting a Band-Aid on a major gash, you know, like your belly's cut wide open, but then somebody puts a little Band-Aid at the edge of it and thinks, you know, and says that it's okay, right? And so yeah. 
So TPS doesn't help. What would help is the ending of U.S. involvement and U.S. interference and intervention, U.S. control and colonial control of Haiti and leaving Haiti to find out its own way. It's going to be difficult because the truth is from 2004, the U.S. has completely dismantled the Haitian state. Mm. There is no Haitian state there. And then has dismantled the mass movement that propelled Aristide to power. You know, with the demise of Aristide, there's so many Aristide supporters were killed, uh, had to be underground, and basically really killed the grassroots movement. And so whatever opposition we have in Haiti is a bourgeois opposition, and they're not grassroots opposition. And so the point is, it's like Haiti has been decimated by U.S. intervention and control. And so we need a breather to figure out what we want to do as people, right? Instead of this constant barrage. And, but it's difficult because what's happening with this story is the, once again, exceptionalizing of the Haitian situation so that we don't think, talk about U.S. imperialism in the entire region, so that we can't link what's happening to Haitians to what's happening to you know, people in Afghanistan, right? Because the truth is, it is U.S. imperialism that has done that. And what we keep doing is exceptionalizing these Black people as if they're so distinct and so different and to me, that actually is does us, us more a disservice than help us really work with the global problem right now, which is the U.S. I know we're running out of time, but just to help all of us understand a little bit more about what's ha- what happened on the ground in Haiti, when you say dismantling the state, just give us shorthand what you mean, because uh, we know that the uh, Jovenel Moise was assassinated. And so what should we be looking for in the coming weeks or months to uh, express, you know, solidarity with whatever movement arises in Haiti. Right. So those are two separate questions, right? So what I mean by dismantling the state is that there is no independent sovereign state in Haiti. And the dismantling started with the demise of the first democratically elected president. And some some would say the only (laughs) democratically elected president in Haiti. And what happened was, and this was really consolidated after the earthquake, when Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration went in, forced elections right after the cholera epidemic, which is also violent. It's killed, you know, that the UN brought cholera that killed 30,000 Haitians and people barely bat an eyelash when you hear that 30,000 Haitians were killed, right, over a disease, right? But the U.S. forced these elections, which they paid for, they spent $28 million. And then when their candidate did not make it, in the first round, Hillary Clinton flew, this is during the Arab Spring, flew to Haiti and threatened the sitting president with expulsion if they didn't go along with their preferred candidate, which was the Duvalierist Michel Martelly. And so right. the U.S. installed this PTHK, this part, this political party that's been devastating for Haiti and Haitian people and Haitian politics in 2011. And so we've been living under that you know, since that time. So there's no independent sovereign state because you've had from Misha Martelly, you have Martelly who then handpicks Moise, who had even less of a mandate than Michelle Martelly. And then his term ends in February and the Biden administration upholds him and says he has one more year. So what sovereign nation allows some other people, the Biden administration and the core group to tell them when their president's gonna get step away from office and so on. And then Jovenel Moise gets assassinated Biden sends his representatives down there and says, well, Ariel Henry will be your prime minister. And so there is no Haitian state. There is no Haitian government. It's been completely destroyed. And so we basically have to build one from scratch. And what people can do from here is to really 
I know the spectacle is difficult to look away from, but you have to ask the deeper questions like, well, how did the things get to where they were? And always have to understand that it's U.S. imperialism that is the crisis of Haiti and, and it's Western imperialism. And it's also part of the reason the reality is that Haiti has never really stopped suffering for actually having a revolution against white supremacy. Right. Well, we've certainly talked about that a lot on the show. And thank you for reminding us to always remember that history and the debt that all the world owes Haiti for being the spark to end chattel slavery here in the United States and throughout this hemisphere. I've been speaking with Jamima Pierre, Haiti America's Coordinator for Black Alliance for Peace and Professor of Black Studies and Anthropology at the University of California at Los Angeles. You can read her latest work at the Black Agenda Report. Thank you for joining me today, Jamima. Thank you for having me. Mastered economics, cause you took yourself from squalor. Slave. Mastered academics, cause your grace said you were scholar. Slave. Mastered Instagram, cause you can instigate a follow. Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters posing on your dollar. Get it? Look at all these slave masters. Been it time, I'm on mine, I be minding mine. Every time on my grind. My name is Alisaí Gonzalez Porras. I'm 22 years old, a DACA recipient. I currently serve as a DME campaigns manager for United We Dream, the largest immigrant youth led network in the country. I am undocumented, unafraid, here to stay, and here to win. reconciliation package, my immediate thought was my family. I was born in Veracruz, Mexico, and came to the U.S. with my family when I was just a year old. I grew up in Mesa, Arizona with my parents, both of whom are undocumented, and my two younger brothers, one who has DACA like me, and the other one who is a U.S. citizen. Growing up undocumented in Arizona, my life was defined by fear. In the community where my family and I lived, I remember seeing people disappear from our neighborhood, only to realize that they had been targeted by the police and later deported. I knew that our legal status always meant that our lives were at risk. And as a child, I learned never to tell anyone that we were undocumented. I yearn for the day when my family and I will be able to live in peace without the threat of deportation. It is for my parents and my brothers that I am here today with all of you. I know this is our year for citizenship. I have seen and felt the power of those at United We Dream. My team, my second family, in solidarity with all of you, have fought to make citizenship for millions of people this year a resounding possibility. My family and millions more just like us refuse to wait. We refuse to accept anything less than an expansive and inclusive citizenship. And we are here to remind Democrats, like Senator Majority Leader Schumer, 
Speaker Pelosi, President Biden, Vice President Harris, that they have all the power, all the power to deliver to our community. No excuses. No excuses. No excuses. protections from deportation under DACA. Our parents do not. And they continue to work and live in Arizona where they could be stopped by federal or local law enforcement at any moment. Democrats vow to protect my family and millions more who have been forced to live their lives in constant state of uncertainty and fear. This is why I refuse to accept anything less than citizenship for millions of undocumented people, including my parents. I have seen the sacrifices my parents have made for me and my siblings, and they continue to face fear living their lives in the shadows, constantly under surveillance by law enforcement and the threat of deportation. Like me, my parents need and deserve citizenship too. President Biden, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, and Senate Majority Leader Schumer have the power to make this happen. And I urge all Democrats, including Senators Cinema and Kelly, who say they're Democrat, to deliver expansive and inclusive citizenship for millions this year. Together with folks at United We Dream, I will continue fighting until Democrats match our vision and deliver permanent protections from deportation for all. Gracias. Now, I want to welcome my brother Enrique Fernandez, Vice President of Unite Here. Enrique, bienvenido. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Gustavo. Que viva casa! Que viva! Que viva Chile de California! Que viva! Que viva todos los inmigrantes! Que viva! Alright, thank you for the welcome. Uh, like Gustavo said, I'm Enrique Fernandez, an immigrant hotel worker, pro member, and vice president of United Here, the Hotel, Casino, Food Service, and Airport Workers Union. Mi nombre Enrique Fernandez, inmigrante, trabajador de hotel y orgulloso de ser vicepresidente del sindicato de hoteles, casinos y food service. We are here to tell you that our majority immigrant of our 300,000 workers will not take no for an answer. We will continue pushing for what is fair. Hoy les digo que la mayoría de inmigrantes de nuestros 300,000 trabajadores no van a aceptar un no como respuesta. Vamos a seguir empujando por lo que sabemos que es justo. America is our home. And because it is our home, we demand to be treated with respect. The respect we gain by working hard to provide for our families and immigrant workers' rights. Immigrant rights are workers' rights. America es nuestra casa. Y porque en nuestra casa merecemos respeto. Ese respeto que ganamos trabajando duro por nuestras familias. Los derechos de los inmigrantes son derechos de los trabajadores. We demand respect for all workers on TPS that live in fear, thinking the day might come that will be kicked out of the country that they love. And defended many times with their lives fighting against COVID or abroad in our military. Demandamos respeto a todos los trabajadores y sus familias en TPS 
que viven pensando que en cualquier momento lo vamos a sacar del país, que aman y en muchos casos defendieron con sus vidas luchando contra el COVID o en el servicio militar. The parliamentarian, McConnell, and the Republican Party continue to show the same racist behavior of the previous administration. They want us in the shadows and shut us up. Well, I'll say to them, bring it on. We are here to stay. McConnell y el Partido Republicano continúan mostrando el mismo racismo del presidente anterior. Quieren callarnos y que sigamos escondiéndonos. Pero en realidad, aquí estamos y no nos vamos. Aquí estamos y no nos vamos. And at the same time, I call on the Democratic majority to listen to us and do what they promise us. Fire the parliamentarian if necessary. Eliminate the filibuster if necessary. Grow a backbone for God's sake. Al mismo tiempo, a la mayoría demócrata, escuchen y hagan lo que nos prometieron. Echen al parlamentario si es necesario. Paren a lo que llaman el filibuster si es necesario. Demuestren que están ahí para hacer lo que nos prometieron. And to our president, I know he's on our side, but I have a special behavior of those cowboys in Texas. Yes. What's happening in the border to our Haitian brothers and sisters is inhumane. And nuestro presidente, que sé que está a nuestro lado, hoy le pido un favor muy especial. Frene a esos cowboys racistas de Texas. Lo que está sucediendo con nuestros hermanos haitianos es inhumano. In United here, my union, we never give up. Never. As immigrants, we can never give up. Our families depend on us. In United here, nunca nos damos por vencido. Nunca. Y como inmigrantes, nunca nos vamos a dar por vencidos. So if necessary, We're going to fight until citizenship, until justice is done. So, si es necesario, vamos a seguir luchando hasta que la justicia de la ciudadanía venga hacia nosotros. Gracias. That was Enrique Fernandez of Unite Here speaking at the March for Citizenship, Climate and Care. Tuesday, September 21st, 2021, on the National Mall. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this month's extended segment on media and culture, I'm joined by On the Ground's media critic, John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post and author of Flat Broke in the, in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Thanks for joining me again, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. You know, I have to say that doing this media segment every month kind of reminds me of why I do the show, because 
you know, independent media can be very discouraging, but when you really step back and look at what is in the media and um, of course we're experiencing it every day, but when you have to stop once a month, really focus on the quality and really look at what's there, then that's all the more reason to kind of keep on going with on the ground. <laughs> right. So right. I wanted to start with the coverage of the thousands of Haitian asylum seekers that have gathered in Del Rio, Texas. And uh, as of Thursday, the Biden administration had deported at least 1,400 people back to Haiti. Many of these people had not lived in Haiti in years, if not decades. I have a, a little sound clip of really how the news coverage started, which was um, a report from Fox News using a drone image of these uh, Haitians camped out under the Del Rio International Bridge. And I'll play that. They're mostly Haitian migrants coming across, and you can just take a look at those numbers showing how many people are under there. What's remarkable about this is this time Wednesday morning, there were just over 4,000 people under that bridge. You fast forward to right now, almost 11,000. So we're talking nearly a tripling of the numbers in just about 48 hours. Yeah, so that was one of the initial, one of the first reports of this encampment of uh, Haitian asylum seekers in Del Rio. That reporter goes on to say later in the clip that these people are coming from Haiti and Haiti has a vaccination rate of less than 1%. So, you know, kind of like the unwashed hordes, you know, descending on the U.S. So what's been your reaction to the story? Well, the the first thing that strikes me is the coverage of, Fox News excluded, but the co- the coverage has been uh, fairly tepid when you compare it to what uh, Donald Trump faced during his administration. I mean, can you imagine if this had happened on Donald Trump's watch and you have those images, those really troubling, disturbing images of the border agents whipping the Haitian asylum seekers? Uh, and yet the media right. is not, doesn't seem, you know, terribly concerned about it. They've aired it. Uh, which I guess is positive, at least, that they've at least let us in on that much of the story. But there's not the outrage that we heard during the Trump administration when he was making all these objectionable remarks and turning people away. And so, you know, we've really just got this situation. There. I, I know I sound like a broken record on on this segment, Esther, but, you know, the, the news media just doesn't contribute much to our understanding of our political discontent or our political situation. And they really kind of served to confuse us more than anything else. And the immigration issue, particularly as it pertains to a country like Haiti, which of course has such a a history, both uh, on its own, but also in its relationship to the United States. And yet, if you rely strictly on the news media, you'll have no understanding of that situation. And you'll have no understanding of where we might go with it, how we might address it. It reminded me I just learned that the man who filmed the Rodney King beating, I think his name was George Holiday. He just died yeah. of COVID, I think, the other day. And it struck me because I remember how the officers who were responsible for that beating, that beat down of Rodney King, were acquitted. And the way they did that, the way the lawyers for them did that, the defense lawyers did that, got them off, other than it being in Simi Valley, of course, before an all-white jury. But they deconstructed that videotape, that very damning videotape. And they just show right. one scene and they would show one scene, one 
One a, second. <laughs> right, one second, and they will stop it. They freeze it. And then ask the jury, do you see excessive force being used here? Well, that's what the news media does, basically, right? Like, they break everything down to one scene right now, and they divorce it from history and from context. And so the American people are left without this clear understanding of what's going on. And Haiti is just a perfect example. I mean, you really have to take Haiti back at least 200 years to understand what's going on right now. And you'll never get that from the mainstream news media. You really have to seek out independent news outlets like yours that will explain to you this is what's happening. And, you know, maybe you will have a different vision of how we address these issues than I do. But at least we'll be working with the same information. Right. And now we don't have that. We don't have people working with compatible understandings of our of our situation, of our political situation. Yes. So just in general, I just think that this whole week of coverage or this whole month of coverage that we're looking at just reminds me that, you know, we've managed in the whole uprising against racism last year to make certain words safe to talk about on the air, you know, well, in independent media anyway, I don't look at or watch, uh, you know, very seriously, a lot of mainstream corporate media, but, you know, we, we talk about white supremacy, you know, we talk about capitalism, we talk about imperialism, (laughs) we talk about colonialism and neo-colonialism. And so a lot of people understand the relationship of those things to, when we talk about Haiti, people have a context that they're not going to get in corporate media. But similarly, the other big story that corporate media is really focused on is the uh, unfortunate case of the missing and murdered um, young woman from Florida, Gabby Petito. And I have you know nothing but sympathy and condolences for her family. And I, I would say, though, that the case has brought up, again, as it has in so many cases since you and I were young reporters, this continued tendency of media to focus just tremendous coverage to a case of a young white woman who is missing and then found to be murdered or is just missing. And compare that to the countless number of women of color, particularly indigenous women who are missing and murdered. And, you know, I did find a a Reuters story that pointed out that in Wyoming, where Petito's body was found, only 18% of indigenous female homicide victims get newspaper coverage compared to 51% for white female and male victims. And that's according to a state report. And then between 2011 and 2020, more than 400 indigenous women and girls were reported missing in Wyoming, uh, according to the same report. And so homicide is the third leading cause of death among Native women who are murdered at rates more than 10 times the national average. And that's according to federal data. And I also saw a report that gave this information. The National Crime Information Center reports that in 2016, there were 5,712 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. Though the U.S. Department of Justice's Federal Missing Persons Database only logged 116 cases. Wow. So, you know, we are looking at not only a skewed coverage, but erasure 
you know, erasure in a way that that makes, you know, these lives not matter, you know, and uh, I thought about how I don't know if I had sent you the story about our continuing to look at this whole issue of um, critical so-called critical race theory theory, which we know is just history. Um, We are writing history right now. So if these cases aren't covered, as is, it's as if these missing and murdered cases of missing and murdered women did not even happen and that yeah. they, did, they didn't happen. So what are your I, thoughts? You know, I worked in Argentina uh, almost 20 years ago now. And of course, during what they call the dirty war between the young leftist and the very conservative military junta, this was in the 60s and 70s. Uh, oh, early come 80s. on. It's not, it, the, the military junta wasn't a fascist, very conservative. I mean, yes, they were. That's the point I'm getting to. Oh. They would kidnap and murder uh, these leftists off the street. And, and people would talk about how they would see, they would use the, the military, the security services would use these Ford Falcons. So a Ford Falcon in Argentina to this day has this very negative connotation where when they see it, people think bad things are happening. Anyway, the point I'm making is that these people would often disappear and, and no one would ever know what happened to them. They were, uh, they went missing and they would call them the disappear, right? And the reason that's important is because their disappearance, as opposed to just their sort of outright murder, meant that there was no conversation that could be had, right? Like they, they, didn't, they didn't just, they weren't accounted for, so they just didn't take place in the conversation. That's really what's happening with in the United States with people of color, especially, and to a certain extent, women. Right. So you've got this, you've got this reflexive self worship by a majority of white people. Not all white people, obviously. There are white people of, of goodwill, but uh, you have the self adoration, right? And at the same time, you have this, as you said so aptly, this erasure of so many people who have something to contribute to this conversation about sexual violence, right? About the violence done to women by their men, by their husbands, by their boyfriends, by their fathers, by their brothers, right? Uh, And and we we can't have a full conversation, so we can't move forward. We're stuck, right? And that's what happened in Argentina. They were stuck for so long, right? Because they couldn't address these people who disappeared and were no longer contributing to the conversation. And they had really important things to say, and that's what's happened, right? And it's it's not, I think a lot of white people in the United States think it's a kind of tit for tat thing, or, you know, you cover whites, you got to cover blacks. That's not really what, what it is. It's about democracy, right? It's about how people participate in democracy and how you have to sort of account for the despair. And God bless this young woman, but Petito, I mean, God bless her. What happened to her is horrible. And I'm not for a second arguing that people shouldn't be concerned about what happened to her, that we shouldn't address that, that there should be less coverage. What I'm saying is that every woman, right, who 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 faces this kind of obscenity, right, this obscene treatment should be given, should be afforded the same kind of coverage, should be afforded the same kind of dignity, right? Uh, and, and so that we can have a full discussion about um, you know, what the United States is in particular, which is, you know, uh, and I think the author, uh, Edward Baptiste, in his book, uh, Half Has Never Been Told, uh, Slavery and the Making of America. I think that's where he said that uh, the United States during slavery was the, quote, white man's sexual playground, 
Well, I don't think that's changed very much, right? And we can't really address it because we don't talk about it, right? I mean, what does that mean to have the white man's sexual playground exist in America today, right? I think that's what we're seeing, but we can't, we're stuck. So yeah, it just, that's what strikes me about this very horrific story that's compounded by the fact that we can't talk about the other horrifying stories uh, uh, of which there are so many. Right. And, you know, I actually didn't have it on our list, but this remind our discussion is reminding me of a story we talked about last week. And I won't go through it in depth again, but I'll just say that to me, this is very much related to the fact that the sexual assault of more than 100 uh, women and girls who were associated with the U.S. gymnastics team. Oh, my team, God. Yes. The, the short shrift that that story has gotten and the fact that, yes, Larry Nassar, this, the team doctor, the, the pedophile, yes, he is in prison. But the FBI agents, the prosecutors who and the USA gymnastics officials and the U.S. Olympics officials who look the other way. They ignored it. Pay attention to those initial reports. Right. They are culpable. Oh, and no there, question. There are, there are criminal charges that should be brought. So I hope no that question. if there isn't an ongoing investigation that happens, that we see some other indictments because that's another story that's been swept under the rug. I, you know, as a black man, as a 56 year old black man, one of the things that's been most stunning about my education is the realization, and I probably came to me, you know, a bit too late, but I did get it, right? Which is that not only is the United States a very racist place, but the misogyny and the patriarchy that is combined with that racism, because they are Mm -hmm. part of the whole. Now, John, I know we are definitely out of time. We'll link to the second part of our conversation on our website, onthegroundshow.org. I've been speaking with journalist John Jeter, Thank you so much for joining me today, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther underscore Iverum, I-V-E-R-E-M. The podcast is on all your podcast platforms under On the Ground with Esther Iverum. The music we played this hour included How You Gonna Fall by The Crossroads, just by Run the Jewels featuring Killer Mike. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Iverum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material 
Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.